If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to take them, please, and open them to the book of Matthew, the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew, and verse 2 is the one verse of Scripture that I'll be using this morning as a basis for the foundation of the message which is entitled, Christ Crucified. We're only about two weeks or three at the most uh, when we celebrate Easter and in preparation for our celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want us to spend uh, today and next Sunday, the Lord willing, uh, on the Lord's Supper as we observe the Lord's Supper next Sunday, uh, talking about once upon a tree that day. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at the crucifixion that led, of course, to our Lord's death and then ultimate resurrection from the grave. And we know that it's because of his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross of Calvary that we have the forgiveness of sin and the assurance of victory over death and, of course, the resurrected life. The one verse of scripture that I'm looking at, of course, to get the complete picture, Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. The word handed over is sometimes translated delivered. One version or translation of the scriptures uses the word betrayed. And what I'm attempting to do today with the help of the Holy Spirit, I trust, is to impress once again upon your mind and heart, as well as my own, the, the tremendous price that our Lord paid for our redemption and the extreme, excruciating, inhumane treatment that he received on, on the cross of Calvary that we can once again visualize in our minds and in our hearts and feel it in our spirit all that our Lord endured for your sins and mine. For us to just talk about the cross sometimes, to use the word crucifixion, really doesn't ring a bell, as I might would say, as to the depth and the significance of what the cross is all about. Uh, Joseph Kloschner, a Jewish scholar, once wrote, Crucifixion is the most terrible and cruel death which man has ever devised for taking vengeance on his fellow man. Cicero, the philosopher, called crucifixion the most cruel and horrible death. He declared, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen, to scourge him in an act of wickedness, to put him to death is almost parricide. What shall I say of crucifying him, an act so abominable it is impossible to find any word adequately to express its meaning. He went on to say, let the very name of the cross be put far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. That's how terrible he thought of crucifixion. A man by the name of George McLeod said, Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at a crossroad so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut, thieves curse, and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died for. In the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John and verse 31, 
Pilate said to the Jewish leaders and to the crowd that were demanding the death of Jesus, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. But the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what kind of death that he was about to die. You see, Rome had now taken control of the land and of the people and they had to abide by Roman law. Therefore, the Jewish people or the leaders did not have the authority to put Jesus to death unless it was granted to them by Caesar or, or by Pilate, which was the case here. The word death that is used here is a word that carries with it the idea of bloodshed. You know, there's many forms of death. You can die by suffocation or by strangulation. Uh, you can just die peacefully in your sleep or whatever. But this particular word is a direct reference to the shedding of blood, uh, which I believe the Holy Spirit led Matthew to use in talking about and making reference to the sacrifice that Jesus will pay on the cross of Calvary. Up Calvary's mountain, one dreadful morn, walked Christ my Savior, weary and worn, facing for sinners death on the cross, that he might save us from endless loss. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer, seems now I see him on Calvary's tree, wounded and bleeding, for sinners pleading, blind and unheeding, dying for me. I want you to keep your place here at Matthew, but to take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. You have this uh, on your outline. If you have your bulletin with you, you can look at some of the words that we're going to be looking at here. But in the 52nd <coughs> uh, and 53rd chapter, excuse me, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, approximately 500 years before the crucifixion of Jesus would actually take place. The Holy Spirit revealed to um, Isaiah, the prophet, all of the suffering that our Lord would experience on the cross of Calvary. And in the 53rd chapter, beginning with verse 4, it says, Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. Now notice the words that are spelled out for you or written out there for you in those three verses of scripture. In verse four, the word stricken, he says, he himself bore our strength and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken. You'll notice the definition that's expanded for you there on your outline. The word stricken means to, to be beat or to receive a blow or an infliction. We'll see this as we get into the New Testament uh, examples of what happened to Jesus on the cross. But he was literally beaten uh, with a rod, uh, with a whip. The word smitten means to strike or to beat or to give wounds, to kill, to slaughter or to murder. These are all terms that are used to describe what Jesus endured on the cross. The word afflicted means to browbeat or to deal hardly with harshly and, and to be defiled and to hurt somebody. In verse 5, you find four words there to describe what he experienced. The word pierced means wounded, uh, to, to bore something through. 
The word crush means to be broken into pieces. The word chastening means to be punished. And the word scourging means to be stripes, to have stripes or to receive stripes or marks or blisters. I've shared with you once before, I believe that there is a, a first aid uh, course that a person might take where they would use the word pale, P-A-I-L, uh, to describe the four major kind of wounds that a person can receive. And if you use the word pale as an acrostic, you get the four major wounds that our Lord experienced on the cross of Calvary. The letter P stands for puncture, puncture. And that's what they did when they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. They punctured his hands with nails. They punctured his feet with nails. The word A stands for abrasive. And of course, you know, as we shall see, they planted a crown of thorns, the long briar thorns, and they placed it on his head, on his brow. But they didn't just place it there. They pushed it down on his head, thus causing the thorns to uh, drive themselves through the, the skin and blood. I don't know if you've ever watched a, a, a head wound, but uh, one of our children had an accident one time. Micah, our second son, fell and hit his head against a, a brick wall. And the, and the blood, and the blood curling cry that he gave out when all of that happened, but the blood just poured profusely from his, it wasn't that big of a scar but, or, or a cut, but it just bled and bled and bled. And so the, the, the blood vessels around, you, around your skull, it, it's just, it just bleeds and, and, and you see Jesus just covered with blood. I, I don't like uh, seeing the crosses of Jesus that hang on people's walls or, or so forth because with Jesus hanging on it, even in pictures, movies and so forth, do not do justice to uh, the kind of treatment that our Lord received because it always shows his hair in place and, and his body uh, covered in, in portions. Jesus would literally strip to the bone, to the skin and was humiliated in front of all of the people and these in, incisions that came uh, from the placing of that thorn of crowns on his head. Uh, the word I uh, stands for incision. Uh, and uh, of course, when uh, the, he, he died and he died of his own free will, uh, nobody, uh, Jesus, it says, the Bible says, gave up his ghost. He voluntarily gave it up. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. So you have P for puncture, A for abrasive, I for incision. And so when the soldier came around uh, to break his legs, he saw that Jesus was already dead. But to just make sure that he was, he took his spear and thrusted it into his side and then caused all of the blood and the, and the water to pour out. So he received an incision in his side. And, and, and then, of course, the word L stands for laceration, uh, which is a reference to the whipping and the beating that he received prior to his even taking up his cross and walking to Calvary to be nailed to the cross and to be hung there until he laid down his life. So pale, P for puncture, A for abrasive, I for incision, and L for laceration helps us to understand some of the things that our Lord received when he died. So what I want to do now in the moments that remain is to look at six different things that happened to Jesus uh, in, in, uh, prior to his crucifixion, but on the cross as well. The first thing that we want to look at, of course, is the lacerations that his back received. His back was lacerated. In the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 50 and verse 6, Jesus, or the scripture says, in quoting the words of Jesus, I gave my back to those who strike me. 
And I've underscored the words I gave to once again to remind me that our Lord voluntarily laid down his life for me and for you. You go to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John and again, quoting the words of Jesus, he said, I lay my life down. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down and I'll pick it up again. I'll pick it up again. Again, speaking of his own voluntary uh, uh, to go to the cross, to die in your place and in my, I lay down my life for the sheep. The word for there means not only on their behalf, but also in the place of. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, there was a, he took the place of another man. You remember when Pilate brought him out before the crowd and uh, he said, you know, it's a, according to our custom at this time of the year to release someone, a, a prisoner, a criminal. Uh, who do you want me to release for you? You want me to release Barabbas or do you want me to release Jesus? And they all said, uh, release back Barabbas. We, we, we want Jesus crucified. And so he released Barabbas. So Jesus literally on the cross died in another, place, another person's place. Barabbas should have died. Jesus died in his place. But even beyond all of that, he died in your place. I should have been crucified to the cross. You should have been crucified to the cross. But when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying in your place. He took your place and my place on the cross of Calvary. I gave my life, he said. I gave it for this laceration. Now the laceration, Matthew 27, 26 says, after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him, that is, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. To be scourged means, of course, to be whipped. And again, it doesn't mean that they just stuck him up there and whipped him a few times. Uh, according to the historians and the records that we have about crucifixion, a person was stripped of his clothes, if not completely, certainly down to his waist, and he would be tied to a post so that he couldn't move, couldn't get away. And, uh, and then they would have someone who would take a whip, sometimes referred to as a cat of nine tails, sometimes described as having maybe pieces of bone or, or stone and some way embedded on the end of them so that when the, the whip, the lashes would wrap around the person, it would dig into the body and then would be ripped back and, and, and cause his skin to be ripped and torn, to be jagged. And, and so it, our Lord probably was stripped down uh, to the bare necessities and maybe even completely and, and some historians even said that a man might be laid down and there would be two who would do the whipping. One would start at the head, the other would start at the feet and meet in the middle. And the minimum stripes that they would receive would be 40 according to Roman law. Jews, if they were ever permitted to do so, would not give them 40 stripes for fear that they would give more than they should have and so they'd only give 39. But under Roman rule, they were not allowed to do that at all. So he was at the mercy of the Roman government and the way they would treat criminals. And so he received at least 40 stripes on his body. Again, Jesus was a bloody mess before he ever was nailed to the cross. His back received these lacerations. Have you ever used the word excruciating? Sometimes you have a headache and you say to the doctor or to your loved one or whomever you're, you're talking to, he says, I just have an excruciating headache. Do you know what the word excruciating means? It comes from a word that literally translated means from the cross, out of the cross. 
to say that you are hurting so badly that the most adequate description that you could use would be to make a reference to the suffering and punishment and the inhumane treatment that our Lord received on the cross of Calvary. Excruciating pain is what our Lord experienced on the cross of Calvary. His back lacerated by whipping. Notice not only his back, but his brow. His brow was scarred. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 30 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Now, I have read and understand that this would be an accurate number. A Roman cohort would consist of 600 soldiers. So Jesus is surrounded by at least 600 soldiers. Verse 28, they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And having twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Taking thorns and wrapping them around his head, making a circle, a crown out of this. The crowning of thorns came out of a diseased mind, someone said. A cruel mockery, a wicked act of hatred and rebellion. The crown of thorns symbolizes the curse that is upon humanity. You remember when uh, Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and one of the things that the Lord pronounced upon them and upon all of creation and nature is that the ground would be cursed. And one of the things that would be, of course, uh, cursed, the evidence of it would be thorns and bristles. In Genesis 3, 17 and 18, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. So there was a time when Adam and Eve went blackberry picking. They didn't have to worry about being uh, pricked or stuck by thorns. They didn't have them in those days. But after they sinned and God pronounced a curse upon the earth, from that time forth, all uh, uh, berries and plants such as that have with them thorns and thistles. And you can't pick them without getting your fingers all pricked and so forth. I, Took my children out blackberry picking on one occasion. A wonderful opportunity to teach a lesson. Do you know why there, there are stickers and things like that on, on blackberry vines? It's, it's because of sin. It's an evidence of cursing that God cursed the earth because of man's sin. The Bible says in Hebrews 6, 8, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. And so our Lord received a crown of thorns which symbolized the curse that God placed upon humanity and upon ground. Every time, you know, why? Uh, for we know that the Bible says in Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers for the pains of childbirth together until now. Uh, what, he, what he's saying in Romans 8, 28 is that all of nature groans and moans. You, you hear the wind blow, it howls. Uh, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the earthquakes, um, the flooding, all of these things happen. Why? Why is there confusion and frustration and suffering? Every time that you look at a hospital and see people lying there because they are sick, what did that? Sin? Sin did that. 
Look at every mental institution and say, sin did that. Look at every jail cell and say, sin did that. Look at every twisted and warped body and say, sin did that. Look at all heartache and pain and suffering and toil and anguish. And you can write over the, all of it, the word sin. Sin did it all. And the thorn is a symbol of sin, a symbol of sin. So the brow received this crown of thorns. Notice the third thing. His hands were nailed. In John chapter 20 and verse 25, you remember uh, uh, Thomas was not present when uh, Jesus appeared to the disciples for the first time. And he said, I will not believe that the Lord had been raised from the dead unless I see for myself the print of, in, of the nails in his hands. And, and so when the Lord appeared with, to the disciples for a second time, Thomas was present there. And, and Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, take your fingers, place them into the palm of my hands, and take your hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. So the hands that Jesus bore that day were the same ones that he had when he was on the cross. They were the hands that were nailed to the cross. They were punctured with nails. And, he, and Thomas said, I'm not going to believe that he's alive unless I can see for myself. Jesus said to him, Thomas, you've you seen and you believe. Blessed are those who've never seen and yet who believe. And so our Lord received these prints of the nails in his hands. It has been said not only of the print of the nails in his hands, but all of the scars that are on the body of Jesus will be the only man-made things in heaven. Man put those scars on Jesus. Man drove those nails through his hands and through his feet. You did and I did. Do you know, let me just stop right here and insert this. Do you know who crucified Jesus? You made me remember when Mel Gibson uh, directed and produced the, the Passion of the Christ. And I went to see that like many of you did. It was one of the best, if not the best, depiction that came as, as close to what it was really like uh, for Jesus to, to be beaten and treated the way that he was. Uh, but right before the movie was released, uh, the, the Jewish leaders of, of the country uh, made an appeal to, to Mel Gibson that, uh, that he not uh, uh, show the scene where the Jewish leaders demanded that uh, Jesus be turned over for crucifixion or at least to silence it so that it could not be heard. But I want to say to you that there were several people involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish leaders, and this is in the scriptures, the Jewish leaders demanded it. Judas betrayed him. Pilate ordered him to be crucified. The Roman soldiers did the dirty deed. God the Father was pleased because it tells us in the prophecy of Isaiah that it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. Doesn't mean that he delighted in it. Just means the word please could be translated satisfied. The laws that required it. But the one responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus more than anybody else was you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. We put Jesus on the cross. We killed him. Our sins did. As sure as I am standing here, you're to blame and I am to blame for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We put him there. We drove those nails in his hands as surely as we held the mallet in our own hands. Look at his feet. 
His feet were pierced. Luke 24, 39 and 40. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, when a person was, was crucified by the Romans, they would be nailed to the cross. Sometimes ropes would be used, but for our Lord, there's no question at all about his receiving nails in his hands and, and in his feet. Uh, some historians say that there might have been a, a little a piece of wood attached to the, to the cross so that the, the criminal could, uh, or the person could kind of rest uh, for a, a brief moment. Um, but the only way that he could breathe would, would be his, his legs would probably be bent, and so he would have to straighten his legs up in order to allow breath to come into uh, to his lungs, and, and that not very often. Uh, you can imagine with a body that was scarred and beaten and, and whipped as the way our Lord's was, uh, to be laid against a bare piece of wood that probably wasn't sandpapered to be smooth so there could have been splinters there and certainly would have been hard for him to rub his back against the cross as he tried to lift himself up so that he could breathe. And so his feet were nailed to the cross and every time he tried to, to lift himself up or any criminal or any person being crucified would, would have to use the pressure put on his feet for the nails. You can imagine the excruciating pain that would come from that. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, such a wonderful beauty I see. For t'was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. His back was lacerated, his brow was scarred, his hands and feet were pierced and nailed. His side was also pierced. John 19:33 reads, the soldier coming to Jesus, when he saw that Jesus was already dead, they did not break his legs. That was also a fulfillment of prophecy because the Old Testament prophecy was that there would be no bone in his body broken. And so, uh, the reason they would break the legs would be to, to hasten the suffocation and death. It, sometimes a person would, would stay on the cross, and Jesus did what, for about six hours? I think the longest recorded person who, who was crucified stayed on the cross for three days, but if, uh, if they could survive that long. Uh, but one of the ways that if they were wanting to hasten the death of a, a person who was being crucified, uh, they would go by and break their legs. That way they could not lift themselves up and couldn't get breath in their lungs and so they would suffocate. So they were wanting to get the crucifixion over and so the soldiers would go around to those who were being crucified and if they were still alive, then they would break their legs so that they would suffocate. But when they came to the body of Jesus, the soldier noticed that his, he had already died. And so therefore they did, he, they did not break the legs of our Lord. 
John 10, 17, I lay down my life. No one's taken it from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. John 19, 30, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So he died on the cross. Now, when, when Jesus appeared in the upper room and he said to Thomas, Thomas, take your fingers, rub them in the palm of my hands. And he said, take your hand and thrust it into my side. Now the meaning, is, as I best understand, is that the wound that he received when the soldier pierced his side was deep enough that a man's hand could be hidden when he stuck it in his side. Take your hand and thrust it into my side, it says. This shows an indication of how large the wound was that our Lord received. The sixth and final thing that I point out to you is that his appearance was marred, marred. In Isaiah 52 and verse 14, it says, His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now, what does all that mean? It means that Jesus was treated more cruelly than anyone else that had ever been crucified up to that point. He was treated that so severely. The word appearance means physical form. The way he looked, his, his general appearance, and, and what it means is that, that Jesus was disfigured. That when, had you been there that day and stood at the foot of the cross and looked upon Jesus, you would question whether or not it was a human being or an animal. I mean, he was that, that disfigured, that so badly, inhumanely treated that he didn't even look like a human being, just like a piece of raw meat, you might say, on the cross. The word marred means to be defaced, to be disfigured, to be damaged, to be blemished, to be made less attractive than normal. And notice the words more than his appearance was marred more than any man. He suffered more than any other man had ever endured. He was broken down and distressed. His great sorrow had left their marks on his frame so as to destroy the beauty of his human form. It is a disfiguration which arises from aggressive grief and calamity. He just was just terrible in his appearance. And this is why I don't like the crosses that we see. I'm not opposed to people having that. That's fine if you want to have them. But I'm just saying it doesn't do justice to the kind of inhumane and excruciating pain that was inflicted upon our Savior. There was a man who lived a few years ago by the name of A.L. Burt. He wrote a book entitled The Life of Christ. And this is his description of the crucifixion. A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of that's horrible and ghastly, dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, fever, shame, torment. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually turning green. The arteries, especially of the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharges of blood. 
While each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself bear the aspects of a delicious and exquisite release. He was just so glad to die so that he could be better. We've even used that expression. I've heard people, I've even used it myself when talking about we're sick and of course it's just a figment of our imagination and expression word. I guess I'm going to have to die before I can get better. That might could be said of the way Jesus died on the cross. He would have to die before he could get better. But let me say and underscore once again, repeatedly over and over again, that our Lord gave up his life. What was happening him to him on the cross, he could have endured it because he would have never died. Nobody, this Roman soldier didn't do it from it. Pilate didn't do it to him. Jesus gave up the ghost. It was a voluntary act on his part. Voluntary. And again, the reason why. Why had there to be, why had there to be a Calvary? Why, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? We read in the newspapers about people who commit arson, setting buildings on fire and forests on fire. We talk, we talk about women being raped and, and, and war taking place. We talk about ISIS and, 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 and all the things that happened in World War I and World War II and all the wars that have ever happened. Why do we go to war all the time? Why is there murder? Why do people rob and steal? Why is there pornography? Why are there disasters? You know, when you see on the television or read in the newspapers or hear on the radio, you never hear the word sin attached to any of those things. But that's what causes it. That's why people get raped. That's why people steal and kill and murder people and rob. It's all because of sin. A person dies of a heart attack. You say, well, did he sin? Well, the Bible says the soul that sins shall die. I know the doctor puts on the death certificate. We died of a heart attack or he, he died of an accident or, or whatever. But theologically, the reason we die is we all sin. That's what the cross is all about. Sin. And Jesus paying the penalty for our sin. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins, plural, once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So Jesus dying on the cross, becoming a mediator between God and men, pulling us together, bringing us together, because he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You are a sinner, and I'm a sinner. Your sin will be punished and my sin will be punished. God is a holy God. God has sworn by his holiness that all sin will be punished. God never has, God never will, and God never can let one half of one sin ever go unpunished. Your sin, my sin, will be punished. And there's only one question. Who will bear the punishment? You or Jesus. No sin, no sin will ever be overlooked 
It will be pardoned in Christ or it will be punished in hell. But sin will never be overlooked. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. One final thing, and I'm through. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. The 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. Abraham. Abraham has been called by the Lord to leave his homeland and to go looking for a land and a, and a, and a, and a city whose builder and maker is God. So by faith, Abraham sets out with his wife, uh, Sarah, and, and with his nephew, Lot, and their worldly possessions and servants go with them. When you come to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis and look at verses 7 and 8, you see when Abraham arrives uh, at a certain point, he uh, builds an altar. Verse 7 says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And so he, Abraham, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So this is the first altar that Abraham built when he began his journey. The second altar that he built is found in verse 8. He proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So that is the second altar that Abraham built. The third one is found in chapter 13. In chapter 13 and verse 4, And to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. So he went back to Bethel and Ai, and um, where he had built the second one and he either made another one or I'm assuming that the, that the second one that he made was no longer in existence, but he went back to the same place and he built the third one. Skipping on down to the last verse of chapter 13, Genesis 13, verse 18. Then Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And of course, the altar was what he used to place his sacrifice on in worshiping the Lord. There's only one other altar that he made, and you need to turn to the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. And of course, this is the chapter that records for us where God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah, and there he is to offer his son, his only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. So in Genesis 22, uh, Isaac, uh, beginning with verse uh, 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. I, th I think Genesis uh, 22 is a dress rehearsal for the crucifixion of Jesus. Because it says, Abraham, verse 6, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. What did they do with Jesus? Made him bury his own cross. Till at certain point, Simon the Sereni from took it up for him. Laid it on Isaac. He took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. 
He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, I think a better translation, at least of, of verse 8, where it says, God will provide for himself the lamb, it would be more meaningful to say that God himself would be the sacrifice. But nonetheless, it says, God will provide for himself the lamb. Verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid it on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, said, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So the ram became a, a substitute for his son. In verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. After this, Abraham never built another altar. There's nothing else in the scriptures that says he did. Why? Because you remember what Jesus said? Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And I can't help but believe that he realized for the first time that he knew what was happening with Isaac would be what would happen to the Son of God. And there was no longer necessary to have another sacrifice. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's finished. There's no need for another sacrifice. If you didn't, we believe in the eternal security of the believer, once saved, always saved. If you say that you believe that you can lose your salvation, then the only way for you to ever be saved again would mean that Jesus would have to be reborn physically. He'd have to live on this earth for 33 years. He would have to be nailed to a cross again. He would have to be buried and resurrected on the third day in order for you to be forgiven again. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ died once and for all. And our sacrifice for salvation was complete and total and finished and there will never be another one because he died once for all sin, once for all, never again to have to die. Someone has said the cross is a picture of violence, yet the key to peace. A picture of suffering, yet the key to healing. A picture of death, and yet the key to life. It's also, I believe, a place of decision. A decision that you and I must make, whether we will be saved or whether we'll be lost. And the decision many of you have already made, and you've chosen to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're saved. Thank God for it. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to your heart, that he will remove the veil from the eye of your soul and that you will be able to see Jesus in all of the suffering and the anguish 
and the pain and the inhumane treatment that he received on the cross of Calvary and realize for the first time in your life that he did it for you. He endured the cross and all of its suffering for you. You could just write your name right there. He did it for me. He did it for me. And if you'd be willing to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and accept him as the supreme, ultimate, and final sacrifice for your sins and receive him into your heart, you will be saved and receive eternal life forever. Let's bow together, please. Father, I, I pray that in some way that you will be honored and glorified because of what we've done here today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will use not my words, but the words of this holy book, the Bible, God's word, and drive it deep into my, our hearts and our minds and our souls that we might grasp the significance of the death of Christ on the cross and, and all that he literally, not figuratively, but literally endured and experienced on the cross and became sin for us. Oh, how inhumane we are to others to think that we could be so cruel and so hateful to treat people in that way. And yet how glad and how happy and how full of joy we are that Jesus was willing to bear it all for us. I pray now, Holy Spirit, that the devil will be banned from this place, that during this time of invitation that he would not have the privilege or the right to interfere and interrupt anybody from making a decision for Christ. May those who need to do so, do without hesitation. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing, and if God is speaking to your heart about a decision that you need to make, please come. <clears throat>